Lights, camera, action. We have Mike Ryan with us today, and I am so excited to get going here and talk about uh, uh, producing and, 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 and really getting into to, to a, a discussion on independent film finance and, and, and where our world has gone. And, and Mike uh, has been around doing this for uh, a, a long time, back to, I think, to the 90s, right? Yeah. yeah. You and I, I think, have a, almost a similar starting point. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and um, so... A little, tell me about what you've been up to lately, and we're gonna we're gonna bounce around, but let's let's do that. What Great. You been up to lately? Yeah, there's a little bit of a crazy uh, eighteen months. I've shot four films, um, and they're in uh, various stages of post and moving into distribution. Um, I shot one uh, large budget film uh, with uh, Bruce Dern and Lena Olin, which was great. That was in. Uh, um, East Hampton, we shot that, and that just uh, played in the Hamptons Film Festival, and now is out to uh, about to start distribution. What's the title? That is called The Artist's Wife, written and directed by Thomas Dolby, and that oh, was wow. uh, yeah, character-driven uh, piece. Bruce Stern is an amazing performance, and uh, Lena Olin, my second film with Lena Olin. So uh, yeah, and that's uh, that was the big budget, and uh, I just had a film play in the Memphis uh, Indie Film Festival called Faith, which is now about to sign uh, with the distributor, um, and that's in the kind of the festival throws right now. That was a tiny budget film I shot in the San Joaquin Valley um, last August. I did a film in March in New Zealand with Jake Mahaffey, who did Free Indeed with um, star Julia Ormond, did that in New, um, in, um, New Zealand. What are the budgets on, on these? You so like uh, the, the, the Dolby film was in the kind of three range, a little under three million. Uh, the Faith film that starred uh, Brian Garrity and um, uh, that one was under 200,000. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was tough. Um, I mean, it, it was designed well. It wasn't really tough. I mean, it, we w wish we would have had more money, but we made it work for what we had. It just, uh, it, how, it's how, painful. The, the, the question comes, how did you do that? You know, when you're at that number, you're really um, looking at a lot of interns, you know, a lot of us. Uh, so the writer-director teaches film in California, and so he was able to get a lot of his students uh, we're getting a DP who's basically, you know, doing it for next to no money. Uh, a lot of times these DPs are working in the commercial world. They want a feature. They haven't done a feature, so they bring their crew who are dependent on them, their grips and electrics, uh, who are dependent on them. How many um, days of shooting? Most of the films I'm doing now is three six-day weeks. Okay. Yeah, and um, so it's uh, yeah, it's it's not easy, but I mean, when it's designed well, it's 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 doable. And the film in New Zealand was a New Zealand um, driven. The the directors from New Zealand, so that was a large amount of um, money from the government. Uh, put in some private equity, and then a distributor came in to uh, gap that, and that was um, uh, New Zealand a little bit. Uh, around one five, and we did that in uh, New Zealand for more than uh, eighteen days, and then I did shot in thirty five millimeter Panavision this time last year uh, down in New Orleans, which was great, and that was a under million dollar art film that we shot um, 
in uh, anamorphic Panavision, which was amazing. I hadn't shot film in probably 10 or 15 years. So you shot 35? 35, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It was for a that, great for experience. That, for that budget. 750, yeah. I mean, it was, it's again, like un- designed. Unbelievable. unbelievable. Yeah, and when it was designed, we were on a, a spit of land, Grand Isle, and literally our hotel was across our, from our main location, and the whole spit of land was, you know, abandoned uh, to know nothing except for us. And this is all about... Uh, in in a budget like that, this is all about keeping an enclosed uh, a location set up where you're not making changes and and having to do a lot of different things, right? Because in order to keep a budget at that level, you can't be uh, having a film that travels and breaks set and goes to stages and back. I mean, you, you yeah. can't make a lot of moves. So on a film of that budget, how many how you have a setup? How many different locations did you have during that? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is you don't want to be moving much, uh, but when you're in a very isolated place like this island, uh, Grand Isle, or like uh, this small town in the San Joaquin Valley, this farm town, you're able to move in those towns very easily. You know, you can jump in a van. It's not like going 25 blocks in Manhattan. You know, when you go across town in a place uh, like in, uh, a small town, uh, it's 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 easier. So you can get more bang for your buck when you're in isolated places. And we drop in, and then we all stay in the same hotel, and then we try to get as much crew as possible locally. And the and the, and the ability to be able to commandeer space is 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 also easier, right? Is that? Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, we just in the in the film uh, called Stay at Condor uh, Beach, we had a, an old abandoned cafe which we redid, uh, turned it into our own location, which was our own cafe. We owned the whole thing. It was right across from the hotel, so it was just you know, th- there's a lot of benefits to being outside New York City. And these are these are uh, locations that are uh, not coming at a real price tag of any kind, right? Not significant. No, it's not. Right. The, that's not the biggest. And like all films low budget that are shot on film you know the film stock is a big part of the budget it's huge you know? huge uh, it was always was even when i did june bug and we shot uh you know uh super 16 you know the budget the right. was driven a lot by the film cost of film stock well my my recollection was uh, uh 500 for 11 minutes and probably now it's uh, it's longer than it's more expensive than that right 50 cents a foot for a thousand feet was uh, 11 minutes you were probably shooting on 400 footers yeah uh, uh so uh, oh my God! That, yeah, you and burn it's just, through money uh, very fast on that with the time. You have to be very careful about what you shoot, right? Yeah, you have yeah. to be careful about what you shoot, and also the realities of of post and what that goes through and the cost per, you know, putting it through uh, the gate. Uh, and you scanned, uh, you scanned, and, and finished in 4K or 2K or uh, yeah. So so uh, you know now it was uh, developed at uh, Kodak in Long Island City, and then it goes to Metro. Uh, and there it gets transferred, and uh, yeah, we went to 2K. Yeah, so, nice. So it's great. I mean, it's and then you uh, then really you rendered exciting. Avid Media, and yeah. then you went back to the 2K files and conformed from them, or you had to rehang the negative. Uh no, no, you don't go back to the negative. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm saying that in in the case of this workflow, you would not. Yeah, it would not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And so it's pretty exciting, and uh, we had some great uh, crew that uh, came out just because we were shooting 35 millimeter. Um, uh, Panavision and Anamorphic that were excited about being there. We had a, uh, a great loader who had been on uh, the first man, 
uh, Loading, which was uh, an amazing film, you know, that came out last year. There was 1635 Super 8. Oh my God! So I had a I had a loader. It's not easy to find a loader who who, who can handle this medium. You know, no, there's it's, not many. No, left. it's there are not many left. Yeah, the crews are not many for film. No, yeah, no. And for independent film, uh, 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 a a challenge for only a producer uh, who who knows. Yeah, yes. it's yeah. it's it's not easy. So I had a very full year. Usually, I've been averaging around two uh, a year uh, films a year, um, and uh, so this was an exceptional. Strange year. I was in China. I shot a film in 2017 in China, and that hung me up. I got stuck over there for like seven months. And so a lot of things kind of pushed while I was trying to get out of China. And uh, and so that's why there was four this kind of past period, which is a little excessive. I'm, wow. trying, to, I'm trying to chill down. Chill down, not too, not too, too many. No. Yeah. China. So let's, let's, let's dive into to the models on these because, to me, you know, going from what you described as a, a film shot in Montauk with a $3 million budget, all, uh, uh, in this case, uh, shot and done non-union, uh, I'm guessing with a SAG contract for the for the talent, right? Because mm -hmm. you have to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the director's DGA? Or do you do that? No. Or, oh, not, you don't? The director's yeah. not DGA? Okay. And then, uh, and then the and and all of the post crew, the editors and sound editorials, all non-union. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's a good thing about New York City now. You know, our post expenses. You know, when you used to think about post in general as being like some figure around thirty percent of the budget, I mean, you know, we can do unbelievable sound post right now for next to nothing. I know, um, is it wonderful? Yeah. And uh, soup to nuts is five thousand dollars with a four-day five-point-zero mix is common. You know, that number is out there. And, um, yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling to me, but 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 this is the advent for me, having uh, had the a journey of running a sound facility for a whole year as a general manager. Uh, uh, I had the uh, experience of understanding the economics of uh, brick-and-mortar sound, and I think the way that you operate, which to me is so exciting, is that you work uh, to do this with people that work the way that makes it possible, mm -hmm. which is working independently from home studios. Sound can be done as most sound editorial is done by sound editors that work from home. So you're not paying a facility cost, you're paying hourly rates, and then you're paying mix rates with a mixer that's not working on a stage, right? That's how you're doing these, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the, the, the it's kind of a funny joke. One of the, there's a, a couple of guys uh, that, uh, you know, that in Queens that uh, I use that are uh, uh, amazing uh, post guys, I call them the twins. And uh, yeah, you I, know them. I know them very you know well. Them. And, you, and you do your, your you do your dailies with them. I've right? done a few things with them. Right. Yeah. And they wanted to handle all the post on the last Thomas Dolby film. And I was like, you know, guys, you're great. And he's like, we have every equipment, everything that the big guys have. I said, but you have it all in your kitchen and there's no room even for a chair or a couch. It's Just not supervised a, working, yeah, a working place. And he was funny. He sent me a picture of a leather pillow on top of a milk crate. And it said that we geared up and now we're ready for ready uh, for supervised color yeah ah! yeah and that was his uh and so i mean you know but that's new york and that's the diy spirit you know and and uh and and it's uh when it's done well and when people can deal with those kinds of physical facilities it's it's doable right so so now drill down you've gone you go through uh your process in production and then you get into 
to sound editorial post. Obviously, you can do that in home studios. Mm -hmm. Then you do your final mix. The, 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 the print master or the final days have to be done on a regular stage, right? Or no? No, I You're mean... You're able to do it without that. Yeah, and How like, you, uh, you know, well, I did, did several uh, pictures with Barbara Jean, you know, and our uh, pathway uh, was, was pretty straightforward. And, um, you know, we're doing a three-day color correct, and we're doing... Uh, Basically, you know, when it when she gets it done, and when we can figure it out, a, a correct a, a correction and uh, a link, and you know, it's the, the the key is that it can't be rushed; has to be done at people's right, own because, schedule. Because because you have to be willing to be bumped. You have to be able to be bumped, and you have to work with what the facility's got in order to pay the bills. Because I'm certainly not paying the bills. And so if it means coming in at night or if it means stopping for a little while and, and being flexible with the realities of that facility or those guys who are working out of their kitchen, then that's what you have to do. Because you're filling in the blanks of, uh, of the revenue stream in that, in that space. So, yeah, yeah so you're, you're operating in a crafty way where, where uh, when you put together your schedule, you realize that it doesn't, it's, uh, the road is not a linear road of uh, linear days to get something done, and you can't force that situation, and you have to plan for that. Yeah, and that's what you lose. But what I offer to gain is, is, uh, is uh, participation on a craft level. You know, everybody that works on one of these low-budget films is really leaving their stamp. And the material is really interesting for people. A lot of uh, the films I do are, are very sound designed, and the artists, uh, the writer-directors are making them are thinking a lot about sound. So it's engaging the full facilities of everybody on the tech space that's working on it. They're not just, you know, uh, getting paid uh, a paycheck to do this. They're, they're, their heart and soul is in it. But that means... You know, we've got to take the time that it takes for them to make money because they're not making money from me. Ah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about uh, just sort of the, the finance models that you work off of. I think once you told me that uh, and we, we had a little chat about uh, uh, the idea of uh, all of the, the risk factors uh, for financiers, but one of the things that uh, weighs in my mind, and I think I tell the story to everybody I know repeatedly, that when you describe to me that one of the ways you uh, approach financiers is to say, listen, uh, there's a possibility that, that in what we're doing here, that the, that the satisfaction that you'll get from this is that you'll have made a cultural contribution was the term you used. And yes, there is an opportunity with this cultural contribution to make some money, but not to come into it saying, I've built a plan where you're going to break the bank with this film. And, uh, and, and you've structured it in a way where the people that come in uh, are dealt with in a transparent way about the uh, voyage that they're going to go on, but at the same time that they're that they're doing something that's uh, important and special. Can you talk a little bit about how you've been able to navigate that and work with, uh, I guess, probably high net worth individuals or financiers that you've approached over the years, where you're able to make that pitch? Yeah, I mean, the important thing you know to understand about you know what I do. First of all, the films are low budget. Um, but I engage with everybody around a value system. And the value system is about the theme or the content of the film. And the value system is not uh, set up just purely around financial return. 
So right from the beginning, I'm talking with people who are where we're engaged about the theme. What are we doing? How are we doing it? Why are we doing it? Does the world need this film? And so if I'm not clicking with somebody on, on the value system of the film, then there's really nothing to, to do. I can't uh, excite somebody about a project based on the financial components of it. There's, there, that's not going to uh, get them to, to participate. They have to feel empowered about the theme and about the value system that the film uh, represents. And just like an artist will go into debt or will go into uh, divorce or go into ruin their physical life in order to make a particular film, uh, there are people who participate in that on a financial level who have the same passion. And so what I try to do is to try to find people who share our passion for the value system of this particular film. And so uh, the, the financials are all there. Um, if it makes money, they will make the money back. It's all set up the normal ways. But these things are driven really by a passion level that's not about passion for finances, the passion for the content. So these are somewhat like investors. I don't even like to call them investors so much. They're almost... Um, uh, philanthropist, uh, philanthropist to a degree, yeah. although you know it's not a donation model. There, we're participating in the profit uh, uh, space, so that we're hoping to make the money back, and there will be money back. And some of them make a, more money, and some of them make less. But it's really about uh, somebody who is driven passionately about the particular theme. So uh, they can't, you know, I'm not going to uh, engage with somebody who uh, wants to give me money because they want to make money. That's not going to go anywhere, and I'll be straightforward with them about that. That's not, that's not a, a positive for both of us. And so then the question is how do we find people for particular films or particular, and that's the struggle, and it's difficult. And now the output model in terms of where these kinds of films, and these are art films, they're not even really independent films. They're art films, a lot of them that I make. That are all independently financed. They're independently without, financed. Without a distribution commitment up front, yeah. without, without, without a foreign sales commitment, without a domestic uh, broadcast or theatrical commitment. Um, uh, so uh, uh, the, world, the world is open. Uh, uh, the idea is that if it's uh, if these are all equity positions, uh, and I'm sure that they're not 100% equity, there's probably some debt, right? I'm guessing in the structure mm -hmm. that uh, that there is uh, a, an opportunity uh, to go to the marketplace um, and uh, be unencumbered by uh, ownership at the back end, right? Because you're not working with someone who who says, well. Uh, uh, you've you've already given up the rights to this, this, and this, and this. So on many of your projects, you've not given the rights up to foreign sales, or you have? No, ha usually not. Although sometimes, uh, like with the uh, with the uh, film, the artist's wife with the Bruce Dern, I had um, I put it out because of the cast and Lena Olin uh, being European. I did put it out for foreign sales agents in order to get uh, some MG money up front. Uh, and I was so able. You to were do able that. to use that yes. model, which is which is the old foreign sales. It's model. The old one, yeah. And 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 then you know I'm also an EU citizen. I'm an Irish citizen, and so I participate in the EU. So I have another set of films that are just operating in the EU system. Like the New Zealand film um, was a New Zealand government film, but uh, MPI, uh, the distributor, came in and they and they uh, carried a lot of cash uh, up front. 
uh, for that in order to get uh, the world, actually, as a sales agent and a backstop distributor. So in the foreign, in the European model, we still need that component of the distributor being placed in order to trigger the government or the cultural funds. Uh, but here in America, it's really tough, and, you know, the distributors are struggling. Uh, and so uh, it's a real gamble. It's more of a gamble than it's ever been. Uh, in part, again, because I'm because these are art films, meaning that um, you know any kind of content nowadays or is 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 not prohibitive on cable. I mean, that's one thing that's the doors are open. There's, you know, you can't make. There's not really you can do any or say anything in terms of content uh, on the on the on the networks or or in in cable space, uh, the streaming space. But what I'm doing is about how we tell the stories. And these are visually driven uh, stories that are not plot driven or dialogue driven. And a lot of times these are experienced uh, in a visual way that doesn't engage dialogue. And that's difficult. And it's more difficult now because I don't know where our home is in terms of streaming because these types of films have a tough time with people's fingers on the clicker. Uh, and so there's, there's, it's more challenging than ever before in terms of that distrib- distribution. Because you're making films where you can't hit the pause button. Yeah. Is that it? I mean, I mean, I'm asking. Yeah, you, I'm you, asking. You, you can't, and also you have to ride through periods of I don't know where I am, or confusion, or ambiguity, or silence. You know, and silence doesn't really work well on TV. You know, it doesn't. Uh, you're so distracted. Uh, so I'm making films that, and I use the word films, and it really needs a theatrical component to fully experience it, whether that's in a festival circuit or if it's in a limited theatrical run. But but the, everything that you're making is being made with the idea that it will be projected in a theater. You're not making it for the small screen. You're making it in realization that it will have a life that will go to all abilities for viewers. Yeah, and that's and that's a, a a dreaming, you know, unrealistic perception. But I deal with dreamers, and I deal with writers and directors who really dream in terms of the cinema, uh, theatrical space, and that 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 that's more unrealistic than ever. And uh, it just has made my position even more difficult now in trying to make in America these films that are more common in Europe, but we're talking about uh, art films rather than indie uh, films. And, and, and apropos of that, when you're in a place uh, or in a European city, like uh, I think the great example would be if you walk uh, through the streets of Paris, the amount of independent movie theaters that there are that are not chain-owned is, is outrageous. Right. I mean, if you compare just that environment to any U.S. city, it, it, it's it's crazy. You walk through the left bank and it's it's nuts. Yeah. The amount of independent theaters there are, we have so few left in the United States, right? It's true, but don't forget that the government actually gives cultural funds for people who run theaters, and they actually support the, the whole pathway in Europe from development all the way through exhibition. There's oh, money so they there. support exhibition? They support exhibition. Tell me about that. Well, from what I understand, you know, if you're a film owner, if you own, let's say, Cine Luxembourg, he's a film producer, the person who owns it, and he produces art films, and he owns the theater, and he's getting some, I don't know the exact money, but there is government support for what he does, because what he's doing is contributing to the cultural identity of that 
country, France, which is what why there's cultural funds. And so all the way through from development, producers get money, um, you know, and sales agents get money. Right there, I want to hit that 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 topic right there. A producer's life is about developing projects. When you develop projects, right, uh, typically you're not getting paid through an overhead deal necessarily, right? You're developing something where you're, you're planning and budgeting and then raising money. Talk a little bit about your life as a producer having to uh, uh, basically carve out your calendar for periods of time that I, I'm, I'm guessing are not paid with overhead, right? I mean, yeah. talk a little bit about how, that, how, that, how your life works in that way. Because you're making a lot of films. Yeah, that's a, you know, so like the film Faith, which uh, we shot last summer, is probably the director and I worked on the script probably close to six years. I mean, it was off and on, uh, but before I even got to casting it, I was spending an enormous amount of time in drafts and redrafts. And I spent a lot of time in development, meaning, you know, let's look at this story. And then I look at the draft and I say, let's just do a, uh, an exercise. Let's rewrite the whole story, but from this female character's point of view. And do you get involved physically in the writing? Sometimes, but generally, you know, I have, I have, I come from a writing and directing and acting background. So I have some pretty clear thoughts about it, but it, but it's all the writer's work. I'm trying to make their best film. I'm not making my film. And so it has to come from them. So I'll try to encourage that. I don't want to write it out for them. I want to hopefully, just like you would talk to an actor, you don't want to tell them what to do. You want to give them the setting in which it appears organically. So the development process is one in which we have to share the same goals or the same objectives. And to that degree, I have a certain amount of writing exercises that we go through. And putting that time into development of a script is so inefficient and pointless. There's just no money for it. There's, uh, it's the least efficient uh, use of money, and it's the thing that people do the least nowadays. You know, uh, you know, at the time of Good Machine, when uh, when I was helping out uh, Good Machine make films, you know, Ann Carey had an office, and all day she was just dealing with scripts. It was a beautiful developing thing. scripts, right? Developing scripts with 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 a, a financial overhead model that paid for a staff of people yeah. to work on story. And when we go back to the, that era, you were making films like Ice Storm mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, the other... Go, go storytelling, you know, storytelling, story Laramie right? Project uh, we did Laramie, for HBO, right. you know. And Door I was, in the Floor. Door in the Floor I acted in. Uh, and, um, yeah, it was just a different time, but, but that development model was, was part of the Good Machine uh, situation, which had always struggled, actually, even in the high time. Even in the good time, it was always struggling to, to, to exist. But development is a very difficult thing to do, and very few people have patience for it. And it's something that I do on the script level, and then I have to cast it. I have to cast, you know, I can get a casting agent to help me out on a couple of roles, but I'm the one that's talking to the agents to try to say, hey, I know your client is worth more money, but this is why it has to be ultra-low budget rate, and this is why it can't be any, you know, uh, perks. And then I have to find the money after it's cast. So if we talk about development, not just in terms of writing the script, there's all those stages that I'm doing. It's enormously and ridiculously inefficient, completely ludicrous. There's no, there, even during the good machine days, it didn't really make sense financially. But it's chicken and egg for you, though, isn't it? Because, because as I know it, 
in the in the foreign sales model, which I'm a little bit familiar with because I know the companies that are involved in giving you what are uh, would be the equivalent of comps for what your film is worth in the foreign sales marketplace based on your cast, right? Mm -hmm. But in your case, you're also making films where you don't necessarily have bankable cast, and then it's all about Mike Ryan, right? To a degree, but I mean, I, I get it. I get great cast. I do get cast, like the film Faith, you know, which was made for a super low amount of money. Starred Brian Garrity, you know, who's been in The Alienist and Zero Dark Thirty, and uh, not um, in um, uh, the other Catherine Bigelow film. Uh, and was it Hurt Locker? Hurt Locker. Hurt Locker. Yeah. And it's a great cast, and uh, yeah. Ido Goldberg and 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 uh, Nora Jane Noon, great cast. Uh, are they, you know, A-listers? No, or you know, but um, people know them, and their skill is apparent. And so I do have uh, amazing cast in a lot of my films because the roles are so amazing. Free Indeed, which uh, you know won uh, Best Film in the Venice Horizon section. Uh, David Harewood, you know, David Harewood is a, a Shakespeare-trained uh, British actor. Edwina Finley. This is unbelievable talent and cast, and people know these people. Uh, but it's not enough com to really bring in big bucks, in part because the stories are challenging and the way the stories are told is challenging. And so it's not just like that cast, if it was in a comedy, uh, would, would get me bigger money. But um, combining that cast with a story that is, um, some people would call it dark, uh, some people call it slow, um, it's visually orientated and that's the challenge. So let's let's like let's like go through uh, now we, we 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 sort of worked around a little bit of what the memory of that good machine era was. Right. So the good machine era when when in the in the which would have been the 90s, mm. um, there was an, uh, a period where there was a, a, a middle budget independent mm. film that was being made and, and, and funded with a distribution plan and a foreign sales plan and, and, uh, and there was development put into scripts and all that and there was a company behind it. Uh, today, the, what, what remains are individuals mm. like you mm -hmm. who are doing it on their own, right? Yeah. So operating on your own independently, you're working with the overhead of the money that you raise uh, to pay you as the producer and making four films, and this is this is your this is your your year. Ever your year is built on making this quantity of films and getting paid as the person who is the anchor and the producer and the person that can bring it home. And then on top of that, and the next thing I wanted to sort of hit was the idea that cast in disregard or director, first time director. You work with first time directors. Yeah. Uh, what is the hardest thing in financing, from my standpoint, uh, a, a lesser-known cast and a lesser-known director? What anchors the the finance? It's you, yeah, because it's a proof of concept. Talk a little bit about that, and talk about how that uh, has enabled you as a, as a producer, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, I mean, enable, but it's it's tough. I mean, the first-time director uh, is a big uh, challenge. Uh, you don't. You know, the, it, going through a, a pre-production, just a prep and focusing uh, for 14 hours every day on something 
for, let's say, 40 days is not something that everybody physically has ever gone through. Uh, you know, what happens emotionally when you become obsessed with one thing and are literally only doing it from the moment you wake up until the second you go to sleep and it's still going on when you're sleeping. And some people can't get through that. And that's a physical aspect of the first timer that's a risk. And that is a real thing. Um, and so I'm a kind of a, a backstop for a lot of first timers because I can direct and because I, I am a very hands-on producer. I'm, I like to be always behind the camera. Uh, uh, I'm there if the director ha wants my opinion. Um, I will sometimes uh, be able to provide help with actors or guiding them if we feel like a performance uh, could get better. Uh, and so I have a lot of tools in my kit that I like to use coming from acting. I feel like I am really good with actors, so I'm there literally a lot of times behind these first-time directors, and a lot of the, the money knows that, uh, that, 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 I can, that I can do that, and I have done that. So that's that's a help, and I enjoy uh, being involved in all process. I'm in, the, I'm often in the mix. I'm often in the mix, having uh, arguments uh, or discussions with the director about the level on the room tone. You know, I find first-time directors they get into a sound mix and they get obsessed with the room tone, and that's all they're hearing. And it's amazing to me to to see that hearing is um is is arbitrary in some ways and somebody will say all i'm hearing is the fan like can you bring the fan down and it's like that's in the mix don't stop obsessing about it sometimes i'm literally in the mix with the director helping them uh mix it uh, uh the, the the picture and i like doing that and understanding what the environment is in the moment because because what you've shaped is something that you've lived through the entire time. Mm -hmm. So so knowing from that moment that you're in the, in the mix stage, going back to the moment that you were shooting and the environment of sound that you created and, and all of the components of Foley and sound, sound design and all the things that lead up to the mix that then become the components of sometimes creating an environment with all of its background from scratch. Yeah. And 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 someone has to have been through that experience all the way through. And it's funny, I, I, I worked with a with a with a mixer when I ran a, the, the sound facility that I was at that was uh, uh, started as a, a, a location mixer. And I always thought to myself, what an unusual place to come from as a re-recording mixer to have had the experience of being on set and being the person that captured original audio, because that experience uh, informs the understanding of what the environment was at its rawest moment to what it is at its finished design moment, right? And you live Completely. with that creative process. Totally. I mean, and sometimes the director doesn't understand what I'm doing. Sometimes I want another take when we're shooting. And uh, in my mind, the reason why we're doing, the main reason we're doing another take is because I saw that the boom operator was offline with the sound of the door closing. And, um, you know, rather than try to get the door closing wild, which I'll do later in the break when the, when the director leaves or walks off with the talent, I want to try to get that in that mix and try to get it better. And I, I'll, go, I'll go to the sound mixer and say, tell them to favor ahead the, the door and get ahead of them on that so we can get the door uh, before he gets there. And so, like, those kinds of things, I'm totally, because on these low-budget films, I'm not doing fully. And you don't, you're doing no foley. No, a lot oh of times God. there's no foley, of and course. so I'm grabbing sounds. I'm working with the sound mixer. The sound mixer is very the on on set is very important to me, and so that's part of the reason why I like to be on set. Is like I'm actually building 
the whole fully. I'm building it. Part and of the part of the low budget process. Totally. Because you know? because that whole idea of sound design, sound effects, and foley, which is a cost to fill the sound of the room in making a movie. Oh my God! Uh, uh, most people say, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna do that at the end." That's not part of this. We're shooting this performance, and the and the elements of sound and the environment are not going to happen while we're shooting. Yeah, and um, you know, that's part of the low budget thing is, you know, and a line producer is not going to be the per the line producer who's really just dealing with the budget for the shoot. They're not going to be worried about post. They're not going to be worried about, you know, the line producer is gone on the last day of shooting or the last day of rap. They're not going to be wanting to add more time to the shoot day to to to, to get uh, sound and to get wild sound or to make sure that we got the door closing or if the footsteps were really important and that floor was unique, I want to get it now. They're not, they're not going to do that. The line producer's not going to do it. And so all it is is really up to me. The director doesn't even hardly want to do it because in most cases they haven't s sat in this low-budget sound process and they just think from film school that it's going to be a Foley and there's going to be five days of playing with sound, which in low-budget doesn't happen. So it's just me on set. It's fantastic because this is like, to me, this is the, these are the, these are the tools of the low-budget producer, mm -hmm. and it's like uh, uh, just uh, uh, so important to, totally. to to structure that. Uh, go into a little bit. Tell me a little bit about the the uh, the stuff in the in you mentioned before about the European Union. You're a you're a passport holder. You work with European Copro. I want to I want to get uh, I want to go to school on this with you because this is something where the complexities of what you've done in European co-production but also tell me a little bit about that plus the uh the the thing that you did in new zealand and how that worked good kind of drill through how those things how those how those deals came together and and you know in as best detail as you can offer i mean the key to, to the whole european model is that people have to understand is that it's tied to the writer director being of that country so it's not about like an american writing a film for Paris or New Zealand thinking that they can get that country's money. It doesn't work that way. You have to be, the writer-director has to be of country of origin or have a passport in that country for it to work, to, to begin. And I come in as somebody that has an Irish passport as an EU, I can work in a lot of different countries and hopefully get to the place where I have Ireland uh, backing me if there's a component of Irish uh, national identity to the project. And so there's that component. And then as an EU person, I get a certain count as a certain amount of points. So I do a lot of line producing for European films who are shooting, let's say, in America. And I count towards a European uh, system of points where they combine different countries in order to get different systems. So that I would use that as a benefit. In New Zealand, the government, uh, as a writer-director, Jake, uh, has become a New Zealand uh, resident in order to participate as a New Zealand uh, uh, artist and get their money and to live there. And he loves the country and he's moved his family there and he teaches there and he has a full-time job. He was born and raised in Ohio. And he uh, then is entitled to the New Zealand cultural funds. And then that uh, was about maybe three quarters of the total cost of the budget came from the government. 
I had to put in an equity uh, portion, which was um, small, and then we had to have a distributor on board, and they put in another uh, uh, chunk of money. And so out of the 1.5, you know, 800 or so comes from New Zealand, and the rest is between myself uh, and my equity and the distributor. And the, the, the European model works because each country can put in a certain portion and you want to combine countries in order to get above a million. So you have a French-German co-production production or New Zealand and Ireland co-production. Are those done with, uh, with, with, with territory theatrical commitments? Uh, generally, yes. You have to, each country has to actually be a part of a copyright owner. It's very different the, the way it works in the EU, is that every participant uh, who's getting their government money, their representative producer is a copyright holder and is sharing the copyright. It's very different than what we have in the States. Uh, so it's not a carpet-bagging situation where people go around and, and just kind of take different funds. It actually has to be tied to the country and the content has to be tied in relation to the identity of that particular country. And it has to, you know, it's not something that you uh, uh, do just for finance reasons. You have to kind of, it has to, it, it's a little more complicated than it may look from here. But it starts with a writer-director being from one of those countries. Now let's talk a little bit apropos of that, right? Now in the, in the, in the advent of uh, the desire, specifically we'll say for, uh, uh, making local content by a conglomerate. Uh, one, Netflix is an example who have placed themselves in Europe now to make content for the local market. Mm -hmm. Has that been anything that you've been engaged in or is that something that you're staying on the outskirts of because you work inside of a theatrical model uh, for your projects and then have them ultimately end up bought or acquired afterwards right because so you're staying by origin faithful to the indie model is that how you're operating entirely i am but you know nobody is turning away the the hope or the idea of netflix money or amazon money i mean it's not it's i'm not i'm not uh, i pitch and go through that route on everything you have to you know and i i offer almost all my projects to netflix and then figure it out backwards uh, in terms of how to get in that theatrical component. And in terms of Netflix in Europe, uh, uh, a lot uh, that is handled through my European partners. So, uh, the, but it's a, it's a component of every film deal now. There's not, there's not something that you can ignore. And so everything involves uh, thinking about or hoping for or positioning for, for those because that's where the money is. Um, and I do have a TV project, uh, one TV project, that I'm trying to make uh, outside the U.S. for an international market that could also work in the U.S. Great. Yeah. So you're doing, you're going to work on some uh, some episodic. That has not been uh, your, uh, uh, your, in your timeline normally, correct? No, I haven't done it at all, but I found a series of books that were very cinematic and not plot-driven and not dialogue-driven. Uh, and very character-driven. It's in the space of Nordic noir, which is very moody and atmospheric. And uh, we have a great actress that's interested, and we're trying to figure out how to how to position that. But it's definitely something that would be primarily created in the European market for European market that will have additional value in America because it's also primarily in English, even though it would be shot uh, in Europe. China, tell me about it. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I, mean yeah. I want to know about that whole story. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I mean, first of all, I, 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 I'm pretty close with with Kiana, who did 
man from Tai Chi there. And then mm -hmm. I have a number of people who I know that have worked with what, at least at the time, was the CFG, um, Chinese Film Group, and all different. And then, of course, we're both fairly close with, with Danny Wolf, who, yeah. who spent a lot of time uh, uh, working in China and so, sort of setting himself up over there. And, uh, and to me, the entire uh, ecosystem is that of being in the know, knowing how to operate there. So tell me a bit, little bit about what your journey was in working in China, how it began, and what it was like, and, and what it was like creatively, and what it was like financially. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, difficult, uh, and I think most people will say that, but the difference between Danny and I is that um, Danny brings the money in, and my uh, project was completely financed by a well-known Chinese actor uh, who has his own uh, large film company. And so it was a, it was a Chinese uh, writer-director. Uh, I worked on the script with him, uh, and he was educated uh, in both uh, Beijing and New Zealand. Uh, so uh, we, he had a story that took place in an English, in a kindergarten in Beijing for wealthy children who are learning English. So there were roles in there for English actors, uh, and uh, it was 60% in Chinese. And we put a script together and presented it at the Shanghai Film Festival uh, and won top prize and won a, a kind of a, 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 an ability to meet with different financiers. And we made the film for $3 million with American cast and um, uh, uh, Swiss first AD, Japanese production designer, uh, and an American DP. So they were curious, the Chinese company was curious as to how I would make such a film uh, in an American model. And their original budget was over $7 million with a 50-day shoot. And I told them that I could do this for two in 25 days or 30 days. And they wanted to see that happen. And in relation to that, they gave me, I said right away, I identified, I got to have my own first AD. I got to have my own production designer, um, my own DP. And, um, and be able to make it with a small crew, which is difficult in China. They don't do things with small crews. We made the film, and in the end... Uh, Talk about that. What do you mean by they, they don't... Is it, is that, does that have to do with the, with the labor or workday rules and how many, how many hours would, would go in and, and that you need more crew to do things? In a, t tell me about the cultural reason for that. Yeah, the difference there, the, the, they have, uh, first of all, in terms of rules... The rule is they work seven days nonstop. Okay. So, so they'll go 90 or 120 days in a row. So they have no breaks. No and breaks. And so their labor rules don't require uh, 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 the, what the, all the other rest, the rest of the world labor rules are. That doesn't so, exist. Doesn't, doesn't exist. exist. Okay. And consequently, wow. it's extremely in inefficient. Wow. Extremely inefficient. And I would try to explain to, to them, uh, you know, uh, there's no benefit to having a seven-day production office uh, because I'm here on Sunday and I see them drinking tea and smoking. They're not doing anything. You get more value if you gave them Sunday off and then tell them that they had to be done by 11 p.m. on Monday and that was the work day. You would see if it, they couldn't grasp that. And uh, I had American cast and I had deals with the DP and I told them that it had to be six-day weeks and we couldn't do it. Every week I had a fight with them about it. They wanted us to work on it and they freaked out on Sunday, they were like, the amount of time, we're, the money we're wasting because crew is uh -huh, doing money. their laundry, right. they said. 
Right. I was like, mm, no, I wouldn't say that. And so they pile on the crew. The crew is paid down. It's very corrupt. Um, the, 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 the department head will pay down people. There are, I looked with the line producer. I said, half these people, who are their names and where are they on the list here in terms of their payments? They weren't even on. They were getting paid down through other people. Uh, in the crew, it was very inefficient. Wow! So, so actually, one person was getting paid, and then, the, and then the, and then that person was paying down the, yeah. the seconds and thirds. Yeah, that is a that's a structure that I've never heard of before. It was ridiculous, wow. and it made for very much an inefficient system. You see people sitting on set sleeping, and that is common even on bigger budget. Mine was low budget, but it was it's common, and it's just not a, a good situation. Um, and uh, labor laws are the idea that that the that the crew is a crafts person doesn't exist in china um people are really the work that you know which is weird because our opinion is like oh it's a communist country they're going to respect the worker no um there's no respect and the crews are too big uh and they're not they're inefficient um but we muddled through it we got through it we made a great film and we sent sent it to the censor board and they rejected the whole thing it was like about five pages of saying how it was culturally uh dangerous okay I want you to tell me that story because it's very similar to what uh, uh, I had heard on it. I'm not going to go into detail on another project exactly like that. I want to know more about that. Yeah. In other yeah, words, just... so you went through you went through a review with the storytelling that you've done, and I know that there. Are, uh, I know of an example. I once again not to reveal the the title or name of the film where where there was editorial and changes made because the cultural review did not allow for something to happen, for someone to kiss, to hold hands, to, you know, or whatever. Something, something that, that was not allowed to happen and was not acceptable by the Board of Review. Yeah, and ours was actually um, more deeply rooted in the story itself, which they approved the script before we shot, and either they didn't get the subtext or it became more apparent when we filmed that this was... Um, you know, a, a critical look at the uh, wealth gap in China. Uh, and um, they, it became apparent to them when they saw the final cut at how critical it was about that wealth gap. And so the story talking about the wealth gap in, in mainland China. Yeah. Aha. Yeah. And they, and, and they felt that that part of the story was something that they, they didn't feel comfortable telling. Yeah, I think that, that they. Well, I think that they felt that it would. Yeah, I mean, their 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 criticisms were quite specific, and uh, it was really uh, they really got under the subtext, and they really saw everything. And there's specific things they couldn't allow, um, but that were in the script that was approved. So it was very frustrating, because I said right from the beginning, I didn't want to engage all these people. Uh, if we weren't going to get this red stamp of approval, which allows us to go into all the public-owned government theaters. Um, I didn't want to just make an art film that was not going to go out uh, wide. And uh, that was why I wanted to make it to see to what degree uh, this kind of critical subtext could work on a mass level. And in the end, it didn't work. They caught it. Now, there at a, when we made it, it was less... Uh, restrictive than it is now. Uh, Beijing is in a, China's in a kind of a different mindset than possibly when we started. So it may still what, come what, out what, at some what point. What year was this? We shot it in 2017. Okay. And uh, prepped it, and we were in Shanghai 2016 Film Festival, 
and we were shooting uh, by in January of 2017. 2017, and yeah. then and then you were in China from from the beginning of 2017 through the end fall. of 2016, trying to trying to get it going, uh, prepping it uh, all the way into uh, you know, like I say, it was like a six month process, and it really just killed my schedule. And then the and then the production starts beginning of 2017. Yeah, and then. And then did you do, I, I, I don't recall where you said you did post on this. Was that done there? Yeah, it was all done there. It was okay. all Chinese uh, equity that paid for it. And okay. it was all done uh, there in China. And you stayed through that process? No, I didn't. At that point, uh, it took the prep. What happened is that labor is so cheap, they just pushed everything. And everything was about waiting for the actors. And they didn't set it up in such a way that they felt uh, responsible about people's prep time. And so every time they, I would say, okay, this actor's not ready to start work in two weeks, then we have to recast. And they were like, no, we're going to wait for them. I said, well, if we wait for them, it's going to be another three weeks because the blackout date's on the other person, and we're going to lose them, and that other person's more valuable. And this is what we do. We can't have everybody. They were like, no, they wanted everybody, and they kept waiting. And it was that kind of situation because they were really casual about the production designer's schedule and the production designer's pay. They were on flats, and they didn't care. And so it was that, again, that disrespect for labor uh, that killed the prep time, you know. When we're prepping, we have a start date, and we've only got, I've only got three or four weeks to prep. It's only that much time that I have the production designer, the set dresser, you know, uh, the AD. And I can't just suddenly say, oh, we're going to uh, extend by three weeks. Like sometimes we'll extend prep by five days at max, but it's going to be a big hit financially. There just kept every other month there was another extension to prep, um, and it was all about the cast, nothing about the crew. So, and then the production itself went. Was this uh, how many days was this again? I'm sorry, we shot for I think 32 for 32 days. Mm -hmm. So this was yeah. a more robust uh, schedule. Yeah. Then when you wrap production, uh, I, well, actually, let me rewind the uh, the clock a little bit. When you were in production. Uh, there was an editor that was receiving the dailies and cutting while you were shooting, right? And you were shooting digitally, I'm guessing, yeah. right? You're shooting mm -hmm. on whatever the Alexa. area, the Alexa, okay? Mm -hmm. And you were doing uh, doing dailies, and you had an editor cutting on Avid in China at, mm -hmm. uh, near near you, right? Mm -hmm. all, it was all sort of centralized, and you were uh, there while the edit production editorial was going on through the 30 days of shooting. But did you not stick around for the completion of post editorial and director's cut? Yeah, I didn't. I mean, I had it was I I left once we wrapped and because uh, okay. I was backed okay. up in the states, and then I got all the cuts digitally and made you know my notes directly to the director. Oh yeah, 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 I'm very involved in the in the editing process uh, by giving notes. I never actually have shot a film. I don't think I've shot a film in which the director didn't have final cut. So that's one of the things I do. All of my films are about the director. I'm there to serve the director, the writer-director's vision. And so I'll give a lot of notes. I even sometimes do my own cut and just give it to them and offer it to them. Uh, and in while we're shooting now with technology, it's so amazing that you know we're able to have editing suites uh, editing suites uh, in on multiple set. places, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, uh, not only am I looking at the dailies as a producer while we're shooting, I'm cutting together sequences. And uh, sometimes the director doesn't have that energy to do it, and uh, we have an editor who's doing it, and I'm kind of watching over that and, and then presenting uh, what I see as potential problems or issues to the director and focusing them on it during the weekend. Right, so you're, so you're really sort of working through what you got 
uh, and making sure that during the the weeks of production that you catch something that you need to shoot afterwards that you're like, well, we didn't quite get that there and let, let's go back and you're grinding through it all the way through, right through to wrap. Totally. And I've already figured out areas where we may not be able to shoot uh, or scenes that may have to come out and I want to see if if together they're cut together that that can actually go away or if we have to add things or if we have to reshoot things. Um, and uh, so that, that tool of being able to be cutting while we're shooting is important. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. No, no, I think it's a necessity. So, um, okay, now through this process all involved, leave it wrapped, get the, get the cuts, you're, you're giving notes and taking it all the way through. Now it gets presented, as you said, to the, the, the government and the board, and, and they reject what they've received. What happens after that? Yeah, we're in a. The consequent is we're in the limbo zone. The uh, with this film with right this now. With this film, yeah, it's oh, unreleased. Still right. Oh, still right now. Yeah, it's okay. unreleased. And that w that government review took place in when Beijing. Was what what what, uh, what the, when was it? Uh, probably the start of twenty eighteen. Okay. Yeah, start of twenty eighteen, and it came down really negative. Couldn't be changed. Uh, it was, you know, tied into the whole subject matter. So we're um, we're rounding the bend to year two of of a locked cut and wrapped editorial and review, and you still have a film that's finished that you uh, appreciate and feel yeah. and that everybody feels happy with that goes unreleased. Now this is an unreleased film for China. Yeah. Okay. But does this film have a life in another part of the world that you can that you can deliver it to? And is it okay to deliver the cut that you like somewhere else other than China because of the structure of the deal? Yeah, unfortunately, China has uh, we had an amazing cast. I put it together with CAA, CAA LA and CAA Beijing. So we had some top uh, China actors and uh, they have um, let us know that if the film got out, that those actors would be impacted, their careers would be impacted to to be uh, in a released film that didn't uh, get approval. And so the director feels compelled to not hurt those actors' careers by leaking it or releasing it on the side. And China has a rule now that says that you can't even play international festivals without a Chinese stamp of approval. So that's different than it was, let's say, three years ago when we had films at, at Sundance like uh, Free and Easy, which Trevor programmed, which was an amazing Chinese film that was, never got stamp of approval. In China, but, but, but showed made in, in China, but played at festivals, and now that's not allowed. And what oh. is the consequence is that the director and the cast would be blackballed uh, in China from making another film in any Wow. Yeah. Holy yeah. cow. Yeah, they're, they're, they're quite persuasive in uh, letting you know that it's not in your advantage to go against their rules. Okay, so now on hold, but uh, there's still... Is there a version of a of a recut that's acceptable creatively no. that allows it to go out? No. So it's it's in a in a cultural standoff. Yeah. It's a it's a finished film that everyone's proud of that is blocked by the government and there is no compromised version that makes sense for the artists no. that can go out. Yeah. So it's unfortunate. So the I'm, actors love it. The actors think it's you know top actors uh, feel that it's a great performance. They're proud of it and. Um, there may be a change in, in culture or positioning about that, but yeah, there was no way to cut it out. 
or, wow. cu- or make the government's uh, cut. And so the poor writer-directors, uh, you know, after his first feature, he's unreleasable and he's in a limbo. Um, wow. With that, he's had to he's had to figure out another way to work, and that's actually common in China. I think there's a lot of films that we won't see uh, that didn't get the stamp. Wow, that yeah. is just yeah, amazing. amazing. At the same amazing. time, we do see films like uh, An Elephant uh, Sitting Still, which didn't get a stamp but played, you know, at Lincoln Center, and 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 but that didn't have any cast at stake. And that had a, a European component to it in terms of financing, so it was able to get leaked out. And then there are amazing films also that do get the stamp of approval that are made in the indie model, like Suburban Birds uh, was a film that uh, I saw at Metrograph uh, that was a very powerful co- uh, Chinese film. But there are also a lot of films that don't get out. Wow, just blocked. Yeah. Un- unbelievable. Let's rewind the clock because we've been talking all about all this current stuff, and I want to go. I want. I do want to go back to to how you how you went from being, uh, as you said, uh, 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 someone who had had worked as a as an actor and and sort of gotten into the business. And even though we've known each other for over twenty plus years, mm. I don't know. I don't know that early story. I'd like to. I'd actually like to know that. I, I don't know. I don't remember hearing the. The, the beginnings of Mike Ryan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's, uh, it's strange. I went to high school in Xavier on 30 West 16th Street in the 70s, and I was a theater person, you know, just at that school. It was a very strong theater, and everything uh, that I was into was music, theater, and dance. And I didn't really even know a uh, film that was kind of starting at that time, barely in, in the city. Um, I went to uh, films with my father in Times Square. He worked in Times Square that were action films. And then I was studying uh, Taekwondo at that all through high school. So we'd go to Bruce Lee and karate films untranslated in Main Street Theater in Chinatown, you know. And um, and then I was into that. And then I was into non-narrative film at the Collective for Living Cinema and into Stan Brakhage and... and, and, uh, and uh, Ken Jacobs, and uh, those were my rock stars in the in the in the village. Uh, Stan Brackett, yeah, fantastic. Those were you know Millennium and uh, Collective for Living Cinema, and a lot of non-narrative. We had a big non-narrative space in high school, and so I didn't even know anything else. I didn't know about art films or anything. Then when I went to college in my last year, uh, after directing and acting in a lot of theater productions, I saw a silent film, and it kind of blew me away. And after I graduated from college in uh, 84, I realized that this narrative filmmaking space was pretty exciting and that it was a medium that I could understand, unlike theater, from beginning to end. It was graspable. It was a young medium. And so I got a job at the Bleecker Street Cinema um, projecting uh, in the 16-millimeter room, which was non-union, in uh, 84. And that gave you a free entrance to all of the rep theaters through Manhattan. And that was the Thalia, the Metro, um, you know, uh, Theater 80, St. Mark's, all of the New Yorker, all of the theaters uh, you could go to for free. And I started at 6 p.m. at the AG Room. And so screenings would start at 12 o'clock up at Metro, uh, uptown. And I'd be there and seeing all the classics and learning everything. And I did that for close to two years uh, projecting until outside Metro. One day I was out there and Dan Talbert... 
uh, who own New Yorker Films and all these prints and the theaters. And, and the Lincoln Plaza Cinema. Lincoln Plaza. Add. We were outside the Metro. I still remember it to this day. This is, what, like 85 or 86, 85? And he says to me, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I like this projecting thing. I'm getting to understand the whole medium, and I want to do this for a few more years. Got my application into the union. I'm looking to move into the 35 room. And uh, he said, you know, this whole thing is ending. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, there's this thing called VHS, and it's going to take over everything. And I sold New Yorker, and we're going to be making VHSs, and people are going to do this at home, and this thing isn't going to exist. I still remember the anger that I had, that it, the thought that this was going to go away. That was my, one of my first encounters with technology. Home video. negative, yeah. The, the, you know, it's funny. I, I, I know you, you know that I've had a conversation with, with Ira Deutschman about that whole home video transition. But I got to tell you, uh, if you, if you map the world from the theatrical era, I mean, we both graduated at the same time in 84 right. and I too worked as a film projectionist during those same years, mm -hmm. uh, uh, 35 millimeter simplex projectors with carbon arcs at the Somerville theater in Davis square. So showing four movies a night, also, uh, a moment of, of film history, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that you witness in, in every single day going to work. Right. And, uh, 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 for me, uh, uh, the, the, and uh, as is for, for you and your life, the theatrical era never ends. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, the theatrical era is the social experience of being in a room with others, uh, not being at home, whether it's with a VHS tape, a DVD, or, uh, the ability now to stream. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. These are all capabilities of viewing. They're not the only form of viewing. Mm -hmm. And then recently, let's look at what Netflix did. What did they do? They bought a theater in L.A. Mm -hmm. They're invested into the Paris cinema. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, uh, let's get real. Uh, uh, people know that uh, whether or not it's a it's a boutique or a large or a large uh, uh, a release platform, there is a reason for uh, for our cinemas all over the country. Um, and uh, I think I remember. Uh, when I went to Art House Convergence, I don't know if you've ever gone to it, but they hold it before Sundance mm -hmm, every year. It's mm -hmm. an a conference. And the entire conference is based on independent cinema owners around North America. Right. And one of the things that they talk about is, is that in communities, which are either, let's say, we'll, we'll take a, 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 a semi-rural community or, or not, a, not an urban or suburban community, uh, like Northampton, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. where the Pleasant Street Theater is, mm -hmm. or uh, in Iowa City, Iowa, or Ann Arbor, Michigan, or 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 little towns in Maine and 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 in the Midwest and all around the country, where where an independent cinema represents not only a cultural contribution, but a place where people want to be in a community where uh, uh, one would even say that it enhances the property value because when people live in a little town, in a place where they're not in an urban center, the ability to have a place to gather that's a cool, hip, independent cinema that shows foreign films and independent films, regardless of the revenue stream of it all, it adds to the value of the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? I've seen that in a, in a theater, the Texas Theater, out just across the uh, water from Dallas uh, the, in Oak Cliff. 
And it's amazing that theater, uh, uh, how it's an anchor for a community. And it's not just theatrical uh, film. It's not just films. They do uh, all kinds of exhibits and music events. And the theater, that physical space can be the anchor for a community. It's a beautiful thing. It was it was already turning that way under Garen Daly when I worked at the Somerville Theater. He was the old man- manager before he became the owner of, of the Somerville Theater of the old Orson Welles in Harvard Square. And back when I worked for him in 1984, he used the stage for live performances. Mm. And on weekends, regardless of his cinema schedule, he would have acts like Taj Mahal, Bonnie Raitt, Donovan, uh, the Neville Brothers, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Doucette and Beau Soleil, mm. huge acts come in and perform to an audience in an old vaudeville theater that had a downstairs and an upstairs balcony. And for me, in my upstairs balcony, I had a little ladder to go into my projection room. This is an old vaudeville theater from the 20s that he was using as, as should be, uh, a theatrical space to have live music events and show calendar events and also have theme events for uh, moviegoers. Mm -hmm. They had a horror festival and the horror festival would have people show up at 11, 12 at night, and they would show horror films through the night. People would come in with blankets and sleeping bags, and they would spend the entire night in the movie theater. Crazy mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. theme events. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, this is uh, a part of a, a, a world of cinema enthusiasm that has nothing to do with just pure isolated home viewing. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think it'll always exist. I just think that we need to be uh, a little more proactive and a little more conscious of its value. Uh, and we have to find a way to, to carve out um, room for films to exist in that theatrical space that are separate from the value that have been given by the streaming conglomerates. Um, and that's really, I think, the challenge of the next decade is how can we establish value outside of the streaming corporate's assessment of value? Um, because a film that, let's say, does not play on Netflix or who's not been financed by Netflix will have a certain amount of value to a particular community. And those theaters need to be independent, truly independent to be able to show content outside of what's going to be day and date on Netflix one week later. And I hope we as a, as a country can uh, uh, maintain the value we have on those, on, uh, for those kinds of theaters that will exist unsubsidized by Netflix in an economy that is not dependent on Netflix or, or Amazon. And I hope and, that they continue. And, and, and with some type of desire to make exception for a theatrical window. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, right now those theaters are basically being kept alive by the four wall energy of a lot of uh, independent films that are not in the st- in the streaming space. Uh, and um, I just hope there was an economy that will arise from everybody understanding that neighborhood need should provide uh, personal curation uh, that will lead to a richer uh, uh, theatrical environment. That's my dream. That's my fantasy. And I and I, I think of organizations, Rooftop Films in New sure. York, right? Yeah, Great it example. happens. It's, right? you know, we look They're at curated, Metrograph. Cur- yeah. cur- Metrograph, curated yeah. screenings. When Ted was still in town before he went to San Francisco, before he joined Amazon, he was running a regular series of screenings. And the idea behind Metrograph that I love is they're inviting in directors, mm-hmm. cinematographers, mm-hmm. editors, 
people to come in to an audience of cinema lovers that can go to a Q&A after a movie screening, mm-hmm. but not a movie screening at a festival, mm-hmm. just a movie screening. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, Ed will go there and show a print of, of Carol, you know, and it sells out, you know. And, uh, and so that's great. But we have an amazing uh, situation in New York. We, we always have. Uh, and, uh, we, you know, it, it's, it's, it's about the rest of the country that I'm concerned with. And, and I hope that uh, all people will, will, will kind of figure out uh, this value of these small theaters outside of, of, of a domination of the streaming space. And there are some types of films, like a lot of the films I make, that really don't work on the streaming platforms in terms of the way that they're constructed. Um, so talk about yeah. that. It's just why, that, why is that? You know, I think that when uh, you're watching a story that's constructed in a visual way, meaning that it's not dialogue driven or even like plot driven, uh, or it's not plot is not the primary thing leading the story. It's visuals. You're in a space that uh, is not really conducive to multitasking. Um, and so generally what happens is somebody will watch a movie and when it gets quiet or whatever, they'll pick up their phone and do a Twitter or something, or they'll uh, go and uh, keep it running and go do something else in the living room. And, uh, there are a lot of films that are constructed and designed around the quiet times, uh, the quiet spaces. Uh, and so image driven films are, um, ones that have a tough time in uh, the streaming space, especially with data that they can see where people click off, and they know that. And uh, a slow second act will get somebody to, you know, to click off, and there's such a thing as slow burn horror. I've made a few of them. And that is a type of film that builds in an incremental way. And uh, Slow burn horror. Slow burn okay, or I, any I, I, horror. I'm sorry, I don't know what that is. Can you explain well, just, that Just Well, like Ty West is, is, is a director that, you know, we know that. It's, it's films that don't have jump scares every five or ten minutes. And there's a, there's a feeling of anxiety or dread that happens in a way that's character-driven and visual, vision-driven that's different. They would call, uh, I think some people would call The Witch slow burn horror or Midsommar even. Right, but when you think about it, right? The genre mm. horror. Okay, mm-hmm. this is this is actually an important part of our, our 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 entire landscape of cinema, right? Horror is a genre unto itself that has a huge audience, mm-hmm. a huge following, a huge a huge repeat desire, and it is. Am I correct in saying it is a theatrical audience? Is it not? It is a. It's also a streaming audience, but I yeah. think there is a foundation of it being a theatrical audience. Or no? Am I wrong? There is certainly in New York and in Brooklyn. We have theaters that are that really uh, uh, do well with offbeat horror programming. And and uh, one of the films uh, that I was involved in, I uh, was one of the producers, is uh, Sweet Sweet Lonely Girl, and we we sold it to Shutter. And Shudder, as a streaming space, specializes in this type of horror, and they have a real uh, audience that, that, that loves this type of character-driven horror. And we've done amazingly well with Sweet Sweet Lonely Girl on Shudder, and we found our audience. How does Shudder work? I'm sorry. I'm, it's I'm, a, it's I a need, subscription I'm, service. I, I don't know. So tell me about it. It's how through A&E. Are. I think okay. it's $5 a month. It's a subscription service that just specializes. They have, like, the back catalog of Mario Bava. Dario Argento, a lot of the Italian giallo horrors from the 70s. And then they have character-driven art horror or character-driven horror 
uh, we were one of their first American uh, acquisitions. And the film Sweet Sweet Lonely Girl is a is a, is a film about you know it's character driven. Uh, it's not driven by blood or guts or 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 scares even to that degree. It has a, an anxiety dread and there's an otherworldly component to it, and an intersection with the otherworldly. It's uh, it's it's it's. Is this, so so there's it's a fantasy component, but it's but it's not it's not driven by well, I think what you refer to as sort of the jump shop, scares the, the jump scares of, yeah. of, of, of of horror the methodology of, of doing horror yeah I mean you, we, we see it with Midsommar and with A24 has had a lot of theatrical success with these types of films and it comes you know almost everybody uh, in the space worships Rosemary's Baby you know as a film that really is elevated horror you know in that sense and that means uh, that it's character driven and it's image driven and so Shutter works uh, as, a, as a streaming space, a perfect example of the good side of streaming. And I'm very happy uh, that that film, Sweet, Sweet, Lonely Girl, found its audience. I'm trying to make part two of that now. And, and are Shutter as uh, acquisition only or what? Tell me about them. They've a gotten bit. now recently into putting money into uh, green lighting films, just like A24. They're they're more active now uh, wow. with that, and uh, they're quite successful. It's an amazing uh, a subscription service. You know, I don't know how the consumer is going to navigate all of these options in terms of subscriptions, uh, but we have dedicated uh, audiences for Shutter for their brand of horror. And uh, for, for in in my case, with uh, the is it of is it is it North American only? I'm I'm sorry, I, I Not, I'm I'm, yeah. you're, I'm learning about Shutter the first time from you. I should know about this in 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 my world. This should be something that should be on the tip of my tongue. But I'm sitting here learning about what this is right now on the spot from you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, no, I think it's just a, it's a U.S. and Canada. I think I'm not sure. Um, uh, I don't think it's in Europe yet. Um, but uh, a lot of the feeds uh, for this come through the Fantastic Fest. Fantastic Fest is a festival in uh, that that we have that's the premier horror uh, other world science fiction. Where festival. is that? Where is that held? I think it's it's in Texas. Uh, it's, it's held, I think, in Austin. In Austin, yeah. okay. And uh, right. then there's several international festivals in Spain and Munich that are also. Dedicated to horror. Yes, yeah. And so uh, a lot of those fest horror festival fans are uh, fans of Shudder. Wow. Yeah, so so in that sense, you know, uh, it's great. Uh, in that great, uh, streaming has helped uh, uh, get certain films out and find their, find their way. There's a little boutique company in, in my old building at 110 Leroy called Ammo Content. Mm. Have you heard of them? No. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so these are popping up. Yeah. These guys... Ammo, as a footnote, I mean, Shutter, you said, is very defined, a very defined space. Uh, Ammo is uh, 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 an alternate streaming service for narrative features, but not specific to a genre. Okay. So, but as I understand it, they're doing they're doing deals that are not paid acquisition deals. They're doing they're doing revenue share deals, but out of the gate mm. with filmmakers mm -hmm. and and putting together a campaign to get them out and selling them. As uh, and I don't know whether it works on a on a on a pay per view model or a subscription model because I've never gone into ammo content. I actually want to get and talk with the guys and learn more about them. Yeah, me too. But but they they have been uh, going to acquire and their acquisitions are not really with a a, a minimum payment guarantee. Sometimes a small payment to mm -hmm, acquire mm -hmm. and then a revenue share. And they're yeah. doing it with. Uh, the entire spectrum of the narrative space and operating on the outskirts 
of What Are the Core, which obviously is all of the, the, the major streamers, including what will now grow into the uh, Disney Plus, uh, Apple, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then, of course, HBO Max and the Warner streaming, right? Because right? Right. That, that space is breaking wide open. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and they're not all making. Uh, in the case of Amazon, it's more acquisition, I think, for for the moment in terms of the theatrical space. But in the case of the the others going into competition with uh, uh, with with Netflix, who are mm-hmm. clearly a producer, mm-hmm. um, uh, they're 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 making movies in episodic. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Very I mean, cool. yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the theatrical space was where it started for me, you know, literally for those years. Uh, I, I, I left uh, Bleecker Street to get a job at MTV in 86. And I worked in uh, uh, long form content, started as an intern, then a PA, and then uh, left there after a couple of years as an associate producer. And uh, Mark Pellington. Uh, 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 writer, director, um, and I were there at the same time at MTV and uh, making shows like Liner Notes and 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 docs about music bands. Um, and then, uh, so that would have been 86, 80, 87? Yeah, yeah, uh, yep. And then, um, yeah, I, I uh, uh, eventually ended up at uh, NYU for grad school for writing and directing, where I was uh, until like ninety three. And then I wrote and directed and uh, co-produced a feature, uh, which I made, uh, wrote, raised money for. Uh, which put, one was which one was that? You know, it, it hasn't gotten uh, released. Uh, it's one of the goals. I shot on Super 16. I made a tragic post mistake, which was I did burn in time code, visual time code. And uh, I've got to redo the whole thing. You have to rescan the negative. Yeah, I have to okay. rescan the negative. Um, uh, but that's how I met Ted and James. I made the film. Uh, they saw uh, a rough cut. And uh, Ted and James, uh, I still ha- remember the meeting I had with them above the taxi cab, uh, the old good machine. Uh, which on, was Canal, the, on Canal no, Street? No, Before that, that. no, in the 20s. Uh, oh, Chelsea. Yeah, they were, they were above the ca- taxi cab uh, company. And... Um, you know, and we tried to sell it. It didn't work, and I was in debt and uh, big time because I put a big chunk on the credit card. A big mistake, first producing mistake, and uh, yeah, eight to nine years of paying off that debt doing locations until I got back in two thousand and one into uh, producing. Which were films like Meet Joe Black and all. Yeah, that I stuff. you know I did uh, as locations all through uh, uh, school and and through you know. Uh, scouting and then location managing and um i would do big budget studio films like meet joe black and as good as it gets and then still staying in touch with the good machine folk uh helping them out in production 21 grams 21 grams was the last one i did the last location job i did and uh you know i helped them out with uh, ice storm it was good machines first union film uh and uh and uh storytelling and laramie project and just working with Ted and uh, James because we had the same vision of film and I uh, would do big budget films to make good money and then take a pay cut to work uh, on good machine films in the, in the 90s until I got out of debt and then uh, Palindromes and Junebug were the first two uh, films I produced. Remember them well. Yeah. 
Todd yeah. Solon's palindrome yeah. shot down in Puerto Rico. No, that well, was another one that well, we no, did. That we did a, uh, that Life a, During Wartime. Life During I did Wartime. In Puerto Rico. That's yeah. right. Palindromes was before. Yeah. But, but both Todd Solon's films. Yes, yes. And uh, I'll take and, the credit of being Ed's maybe only digital film. Uh, we, we, I took uh, Ed down to uh, Puerto Rico to shoot Life During Wartime, and we shot on the red. Which uh, he drove him, with, with, yeah, with him. That was a, that was a journey. Yeah. a journey. Yeah, that was uh, early days of trying to figure that out. Um, and uh, thank God, you know, Ed was able to continue and flourish uh, in film space and didn't have to go digital that way, you know. But he, right, no, he tried he, it out. He tried it out, and then kept, and, and then kept shooting film. Yeah, yeah, and 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 has an unbelievable body of work. Uh, well, you worked on you worked on uh, far from far heaven. from heaven. I was location manager on far from heaven, and uh, yeah, it's just I always love locations because it's working with space, it's working with trying to understand the director's vision as represented through spatial components, and I learned an enormous amount of filmmaking from production designers like Mark Friedberg and Dante Ferretti, uh, who I work with on Meet Joe Black, and representing characters, uh, uh, their characters' journey through space through the locations uh, is what I learned from great production designers. And then, of course, great DPs working with Fred Elms and, 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 uh, and, and people like, uh, like Ed uh, to see how that space is represented and lit in terms of how it was picked and why it was picked. Um, uh, I loved uh, working in locations. Uh, I learned a lot about filmmaking from, from great production designers and DPs. And probably this this makes uh, the uh, sort of effectively paves the way for being uh, an accomplished, uh, low budget, efficient producer, right? Knowing how to manage locations and space, uh, perhaps, uh, and working with uh, with uh, figuring out the most efficient ways to to shoot and produce uh, comes from that foundation. Yeah, Combined with a love for Roger Corman and the ideas of, of, of turning one location into three locations and how you do that and understanding uh, the ability of, uh, of, a, of one location to serve multiple functions, uh, which even though we had $120 million on Meet Joe Black, Dante Ferretti was still doing, you know. And what I learned from Dante was that even real locations have a plastic component, meaning that every real location... Uh, needs to be shaped uh, for the frame and that the only reality is the frame. And expanding my mind that way in terms of the reality of the frame versus the reality of the physical space and how you can use aspects of the physical space to create a frame reality. And that's what Dante did for me. Uh, we prepped that film, Meet Joe Black, for close to seven months. It was a, an absurd uh, uh, amount of money and production that we did on that film. Uh, but it was a glorious time. I worked very closely uh, with uh, with the production designer and the director to, to 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 understand the possibility of space. And even though it was a hundred million dollar plus film, all those lessons are applicable to the hundred thousand dollar film. <laughs> and and uh, and and the tools, right? When when working in locations, because you talk about what's in the frame, and that's what you learned, right? There's a guy that I know in the because I'm I'm but associate in the American Society of Cinematographers and have worked in color correction for a whole portion of my career. So I got very close with DPs. And one of the, Nick, I forget his, his, his uh, first and the last name, but he created a technology called Artemis. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I love Artemis. I did Plus a Turkish film in Detroit 
Let's and, talk uh, about the use of art because to me, yeah. when you talk about the use of the frame, right? Yeah. To me, when I was with Andrei Barkoviak um, in Poland at the Kamrimash Festival, uh, the creator, the, the the man who created Artemis, was there, and he was demoing it, and I and I watched uh, uh, Andrei use it and talk about what he would be doing with it, and and everything that you're talking about using and making the frame is is a location uh, storyboarding uh, uh, still photo uh, creation, right? I mean, that's what, they talk about how they use of it. The, uh, I, I, we used Artemis, uh, I made a, a Turkish-German film in Detroit. Uh, it was an international uh, co-production. And I was a line producer and um, called Green, Turkish director. And we shot in black and white, reversal. And uh, we had the Artemis we put in the actual lenses. The actual lenses that we were using, the DP was using, and we were able to pull them up on Artemis and our DP would frame them up in that lens and I would do the same and then we would have a, an actual like storyboard to the frame based on that lens and based on what the DP was telling us. For each shot. For each shot, yeah. yeah which was, it was a sci-fi film, a low-budget sci-fi. We had a little more than five million. And so we had to dress the frame. And so for that was amazing. And I worked a little bit with Sidney Lumet, you know, and Sidney Lumet would do, you know, would basically do period films and would be out in New York City, out on the street, and he would literally say the frame is going to be from that bus stop sign to that fire hydrant, not a set, not an inch over. That's what Sidney would do. And so the, 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 the art department knew they just needed to literally dress for that frame. And Artemis was something that Sidney would have loved because yeah. he would have used that to literally just only dress that frame. And that frame would be distributed to the crew uh, or emailed and we would know what the frame was. And in terms of certain, not all directors can work that way. Certainly Sydney did. And so that is an unbelievable tool for those who want to use it in that way. Now, there are some directors, you know, who, who don't want to be constricted by that kind of predetermined frame line or want the actors to determine the frame line. But in the case of certain directors like Sydney, and certainly when we were making this sci-fi film in Detroit, we needed to lock the frame so that the art department knew how much to uh, dress. And and uh, the the last project you did with did you work on Before the Devil or which one which one did you work with on with him with 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 Sydney? Uh, I was like so I was doing a lot of scouting uh, and uh, jumping in and out of films a lot all through the nineties. But uh, Night Falls in Manhattan. Night Falls in Manhattan was yeah. the one you did with him. Yeah, because yeah. I the last one I worked on with Sydney was Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. But mm -hmm. beautiful stuff. Just yeah. uh, and the crews always uh, uh, talked about how. His production day was uh, was was very uh, uh, confined. He didn't yeah. like to have a long production day, yeah. and he didn't like to do a lot of takes. And he liked to have rehearsals done. And boom, yeah. boom, 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 yeah. boom. We could yeah. talk on and on. I, I sometimes do just Sydney stories, and yeah. um, and uh, I'm, unfortunately, I didn't do a full film with him. I would drop in as a scout or a manager for a, a small amount of time. I never did one film from beginning to end with him. But um, I, uh, as a New Yorker and as somebody that, that was always shooting, um, you know, the scouts or different people would have to be hired, uh, and I often was, uh, was dropped in on his films. And I could get to see him work. An amazing guy. Amazing, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm lucky that I was able to just see him as little as I did. Right, 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 because it's just uh, 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 
uh, total brilliance. Yeah. Did you get a chance to work at all with, uh, like, who were your, in, in, of, of all the directors that you worked with, who were your favorites? Well, I mean, you know, uh, I'm pretty proud of a film that I was one of the producers on, which was Bellatar's last film, which is A Touring Horse. He's uh, my favorite director. Satan Tango's coming up again for another run for a week at Lincoln Center. Uh, I've seen it, mm, I was trying to count, it's over 10 times I've seen it. Um, and uh, Bellatar and the source of that uh, uh, novelist uh, are, are, are my favorites. So. Uh, I was lucky to have a small part in uh, the touring horse. Um, you know, Todd Salance and I have a, a lot in common in terms of uh, uh, the way we look at film and the way we look at storytelling. And I was very proud to to help him. And Kelly Reichard's a close friend, you know, and I was very lucky and happy to uh, be able to contribute to be one of the producers on Meek's Cutoff. And I brought a big chunk of equity in to help make that film uh, happen, which is... Tarantino's, uh, he's called it the worst Western ever. It's one of my favorite Westerns, uh, Meek's Cutoff by Kelly Reichert. Um, and, uh, you know, I did a film with Hal Hartley in Turkey in Berlin. Uh, um, and uh, I'm really, really lucky about... Uh, Working with great artists. Yeah, Rick Alverson. Uh, you know, I did the comedy with Rick. Um, and that's one of the joys of, 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 of my life is being able to work with great artists like uh, Rick Alverson and Kelly Reichert and... Uh, and uh, that's that's what gives me joy, really. And you find yourself uh, uh, through all these journeys, being on the road and being away, and uh, yeah, that's yeah. been a challenge, you know, because I haven't been able to shoot much in New York City just because of the cost, you know, is is just so difficult, and it's such a busy city. I tend to stay away from bu busy cities like Atlanta and New York City uh, because it's hard for me to get the low budget crews when everybody's making the big bucks. You know, I'd, I'd give a department head job to a to an electric who who makes more per hour pulling cable, you know, as a fifth or a sixth additional on a on a on a Netflix TV show than be the the key on my show. So it's tough in, in busy markets like New York. So I do an enormous amount outside of New York and I'm trying to dial that down and be home a little more and try to figure out a way that can balance that more. And I'm trying to do that now by doing more teaching. Um, and uh, right, you've been yeah. doing that. Tell, tell me about that. Are you up? You're up at? Uh, is it Emerson? Yeah, currently at uh, Emerson, we have a producing uh, team there, uh, and it's just an amazing uh, group of students. Uh, that it's like a conservatory. Uh, the school has just an unbelievable energy, very different uh, that I've ever experienced. And I've taught at a lot of different schools. And uh, Venice, um, um, been at Venice uh, Micro Budget College for eight years. And that's a program in which um, is a development program. We work on scripts starting in the treatment stage. And it ends with us writing checks for full budgets, $150,000 to make uh, three to four films a year. Oh, my God. Yeah, great films like The Fits. An American film called The Fits, which is uh, New York Magazine, ranked it, I think, number seven of, this, of the decade. Uh, we uh, were behind that project in terms of uh, helping them with the treatment and then giving them the money to make it. Okay, so now what is your time uh, as a professor in the Venice program? How long does that go? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, all year. It's uh, evaluating the uh, applications, all the projects. We get uh, somewhat uh, close to 350 applications, and we have 14 slots for projects, and we bring a producer and a director and a writer over to Venice for three weeks or two and a half weeks in October, where we do an intensive all day 
with multiple writing teachers and producing teachers uh, trying to guide uh, an idea from a treatment to a script stage. And that's in October, and then we bring back three or four projects in December and January, and then they're released and they shoot their films in their countries uh, starting in February and March. They go through an editing uh, program uh, to edit those films, uh, anchored by Mary Stephen in, uh, in France. And then they get a world premiere at the Venice Film Festival, their own section. That's called the Microbudget uh, College Screenings. And it all originates from your October program. Uh, that's where it starts. Yeah, we take uh, there's there's a there's a, a 14 projects are there in the October session, and we uh, work on them. And uh, even films that go through that October session that we don't finance, eventually almost all of them get made through other means because of the work we do in development. So it's a, it's kind of a development lab, which is why I love it because we're working with uh, scripts, and they're dedicated to really different types of films, but uh, they lean towards art films. And how long? And how long is it for the month of October? I'm sorry to ask. Oh, all it's these like it's like questions. around two and a half weeks. The session is, yeah. and that so you're there for. Two I'm and there half, the whole time. Yeah, in October for two and a half weeks. To yeah, do that. working on that, and and then staying in touch with the writers, uh, doing drafts, and uh, they they deliver their first draft in November, and all through the process. So after you've done with the the session that you've done for those two and a half weeks, you're then staying in contact with yeah. all of the the projects that you're. Yeah. And that goes through right to the end of the year? Yeah, they, they'll shoot they'll shoot often in February or March, and then, and then we'll look at uh, edits and then give notes uh, to various edits. And uh, it's an unbelievable program, and, 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 and it's all financed by the Italian government. And, and, it's crazy. And, and, and you're almost, in a sense, because you're involved in this lab, you're almost like an advising producer all yes, the way I through, think, yeah, right? Yeah, right? As, a, as a kind of mentor, you know, mentor, and it's yeah. a lab that actually is leading directly to three or four films every year, you know, it's so... So we're, 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 we're giving the money for them to make the film. The rule is that they have to make the film for that money, 150,000 uh, US dollars, 200,000 euros. Wow. And so, uh, but The Fits, if you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's an unbelievable film. I want to check it done out. Done by Americans, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, um, uh, that uh, was shot in uh, Cleveland, I think. So in, in your schedule for this every year, you go to that. Yeah. Does that also lump together with you being at the the Venice Festival every year? Are you in the jury? Are you involved with the festival or just this uh, lab? Yeah, I'm pretty close to the Venice Festival. And hopefully, you know, I have a film in there every couple of years. Uh, and uh, uh, like other European festivals, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Locarno and... Uh, and San Sebastian and and films uh, like uh, like that 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 really lean into art films, um, and um, yeah, so uh, I try to be there when I can in the Venice Festival, and uh, so I'm trying to balance between you know uh, this film production and, and teaching. teaching. I really yeah. enjoy teaching. I really enjoy uh, working uh, with uh, young filmmakers and. Um, and I'm lucky that I've been given the opportunity to do that. And how does Emerson work for you with your busy schedule? It's uh, it's a little bit uh, trying to find my way with that. You know, right now uh, I go up there to Boston a couple nights a week uh, or more. Throughout um, the school year. Yeah. Yeah. The good thing is the school year is not very long and they're very flexible with when I'm in production. And I bring Emerson students on to a lot of the productions when it works. 
So like, oh, you bring them onto your film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So during the summer, uh, we have opportunities, and then the graduates are always they're in the world. You know, the Emerson grads are in the world, and so uh, it, it it works out, and it's and it's just uh, it's an amazing group of students, an amazing faculty, and I'm really lucky to to be right now uh, participating in that program with them. Yeah. And in the Venice program, how many uh, are there that you work with from our business that are our mentors? Uh, we have uh, uh, Katie Muster comes up in January and, f and uh, okay. to do budgeting with them. Okay. So she flies out from New York uh, to go there. We have uh, various uh, people. It's mostly a European-based be, uh, so you, you uh, and mentors. Katie are the U.S. Yes, uh, we're mostly just the Americans. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's a it's also a lot of the films are European in nature, uh, uh, and so that's kind of my uh, you know that's my that's my zone uh, uh, for those kinds of films that are image driven rather than let's say plot driven or dialogue driven. So I have a lot of. Uh, uh, so you have intersection a, with those types of and things. you have a reputation in that area in Europe so yeah yeah, yeah. and then there's the participation on that I have a lot of uh, friends who are German Italian and uh, French producers yeah fantastic so, yeah well Michael Ryan thank you thanks. so so much this has been fantastic Great. thanks Charlie. what a pleasure good thank you. With you good talk Alrighty. with you thank you